Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Malcolm Knox grew up in Sydney and studied in Sydney and Scotland. He's the former literary editor and award-winning cricket writer of the Sydney Morning Herald, and his journalism has been published in Australia, Britain, India and the West Indies. His first novel, Summerland, was published to great acclaim in 2000. He's been shortlisted in the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and he's won a Ned Kelly Award for his crime writing. Malcolm Knox, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your protagonist, Gordon Grimes. Describe him for us and this life he now has. Well, I guess Gordon is a person lost in time. He's he's come into possession of really the, the centrepiece of his life, which is a house overlooking a beach. It's perched halfway up a cliff face, only connected to the outside world by a couple of wooden staircases. The house is falling down and through a series of unfortunate events, he has become the, the steward of this house and due to its place in his personal history and the history of all the people around him, his, his community, this house, preserving it, is kind of the most important thing in his life. However, he's been caught both materially and emotionally without the resources to, to live up to what he's been given. So the the drama that um, is triggered from the beginning is Gordon's battle to keep this piece of history alive uh, against, you, you know, some pretty obvious obstacles. And then what unfolds is the actions of people around him to help him save the place and, and I guess ultimately a kind of an inward questioning uh, from him of really, you know, why why am I doing this? Why have I given my life to this? And those ultimate questions draw in the, the past and the future and the present and all of the people around him into, into the single story. We, as readers, also want to know why you chose a crumbling clubhouse. Is it uh, a metaphor for uh, a bigger picture here? Well, that wasn't why I chose it. I, I, I chose it, you know, really it was one of those mysterious hooks there. It is actually based on a house, which has since been renovated, unfortunately. But in, in the first few years, I was aware of this house. Um, it's at a beach in Sydney, at Freshwater Beach. And it really kind of occupied my imagination when I would sit out in the water or be on the beach. I'd look at that house and ponder how did it get there, uh, you know, who was in there, what kind of life would have been lived in there. And I suppose these things only work on your imagination in that way because they, they, they have some metaphoric load, uh, if you like. And certainly in, in Sydney and coastal Australia, where the competition, the human competition that results in the, the whole real estate thing is the central drama of a lot of people's lives. 
it did and does fascinate me how there is the a kind of place which is the ultimate prime real estate and yet it's not real estate at all. It's an impossible structure that shouldn't have been there in the first place. You can't live in it. Um, a bit like Gordon here, uh, money, debt. Uh, you mentioned he didn't have the resources to fix the place. He does not have the money to fix the place. Um, that's an important theme in this book. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think certainly in the communities that, that I live in and move in, it's a common thing, if you want to call it, people being asset asset rich and, and cash poor. There's sort of the, the real estate boom of the last 20 years has become a, a kind of an existential trap for people where their good fortune has come laced with all these caveats and it's not just wow you you know you've you've stumbled onto a gold mine and due to this boom you're now rich and you can sell it and move off and live happily ever after the truth for a lot of people is they don't have the the means to continue surviving there and they don't want to go because it means something to to them and to the people around them and so therefore the the outrageous fortune that they have received becomes a source of pain to them. It's the ultimate first world problem, isn't it? But um, when, when you see the people in this situation, it seems less and less a problem of privilege and more a problem of the emotions and, and emotions that are universal and, and go beyond their circumstances. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Read, relax and join the conversation. The book is partly about missed potential, uh, about the surfing culture in our country and uh, the Australian dream as well, Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. And what is the Australian dream if not um, if not described by the language of, of real estate? What real estate is... It's an expression of human competition. A lot of people trying to get to the same place um, and, you know, the, the prices that rise are a consequence of that. But, but the, the driver is that competition, which in Australia is, for, for many people, realised in their vision of the coast and the dream, you know, it's not called an Australian dream for nothing. There's a lot of it, nine-tenths of it, which is in the imagination, and that one-tenth, which is reality, is the reality that, that Gordon's life is made of because um, the competition that, that um, causes the boom is also the competition that makes his daily life such a, a strain. The Australian dream will start calling the Australian competition. I like that. We've heard where the lodge came from. Where did Gordon come from for you? I Honestly, I don't know. I, I, I guess he's a kind of alter ego for myself because, he, you know, he's not, he's not based on a person I know. And I, like any novelist, I, you know, I'm, I imagine my way into a place and who's the person who offer, offers me a kind of a shortcut towards the, the things that I really want to write about. And the reason Gordon is a, you know, middle-aged white male is not really for reasons of verisimilitude so much as for me as a writer to get past, to get past a lot of the superficial stuff about characterisation so I can get into the, into the deeper 
territory um, that, that I want to work in. So the similarities of somebody like Gordon to somebody like me are a writing device for, um, for removing obstacles as much as anything. But when you get into those depths, he, he's somebody very different from me and certainly the challenges he's facing are, are different from my own. Why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. How important is it for you as a writer to make sure that people relate to Gordon or like Gordon or want Gordon to win and achieve and fix the lodge? Um, And how do you make sure a 75-year-old lady who might be reading this book also relates to to Gordon? Yeah, well, the the primary um, object of the, the author is to have the reader believe in the reality of the person and they can't begin to to cheer for him or even cheer against him unless they believe in him and believe that he's, he's real. Now, even somebody, you know, let, let's imagine this reader, even somebody who's turned off him a bit, I don't mind that too much because in order to be turned off by him, they'd have to have some preconceived ideas about who he is. An opinion. Yeah. The, the worst thing that can happen as an author is, of, you know, realistic fiction is um, for your readers not to not to believe the character is plausible at all so um, whatever emotions Gordon arouses in the reader any emotions are good as long as he can be believed in let's talk about love um, Gordon has a wife called Kelly who has had an affair and is leaving him he has an interesting relationship with his son Ben who is socially awkward those relationships for you how do you why did Gordon need to have those relationship breakdowns as well as all the hard work when it comes to the house oh you you sound like you you sound like you feel sorry for him and you know (laughs) it's a dramatic starting point and for me to believe in Gordon myself those things had to have happened to him that that's just the character who arrives almost um, fully formed onto the page, a, a person who's kind of got a past. And um, as you know from reading the book, Gordon's past is very much a problem for him because he's a sentimentalist and so much of him is about um, trying to bring the past along with him and trying to to bring the past that inheres in family and those relationships, you know, to make people recognise the past and to make people value the past as much as, as he does. And yet the more, the more he does that, the more he's confronted with the idea that you can't be selective about the past and you can't cherry pick from these relationships and, um, you know, bring only the, the parts of them that you would like to be valued. It's an all or nothing deal. And really the, the tug of war over that all or nothing versus selective view of the past is the dynamo beneath all of those relationships and probably most notably Gordon's relationship with his parents, which is all about how much of the past do we want to remember and how much are we choosing to remember and how does that affect us each day going into the future. It leads us to another topic of resilience and uh, and Gordon's tenacity, his 
he just keeps trying. Tell us about that, that psychological resilience, the physical resilience. Yeah, um, I'm interested by that question because this year, you know, the, the, book, the book was written and finished, it's probably finished just as the pandemic was dawning upon us, but it was a, it's a pre-pandemic book. But of course, during during the book's birth, everything is inflected by the circumstances that, that we're all going through. And I've often thought about how Gordon would go <laughs> if, if a pandemic hit that world. And um, you know, for all of his for all of his doggedness um, that that you refer to, I don't think resilience comes very naturally to him. And Resilience can be a natural facility we have, and we've all seen people around us who the, the pandemic and all of the you know, changes around have brought out the best in people, and it can be something that doesn't exist inside us, and um, the pandemic's brought, brought out the worst in some people. We all probably agree that, that it's desirable, and the performance of resilience is if it doesn't come naturally to you, the performance of it is almost more important than, than having it. And Gordon's a parent, as well as a son, he's in that sandwich generation position where he's kind of, you know, he's the only adult in the family. Uh, Kelly's an adult as well, but in his direct line, his parents are no longer adults or acting as adults. His son, his goddaughter are not quite adults yet. So all the responsibility is left for Gordon. And he's somebody who I think in common with, with a lot of people during the pandemic doesn't feel that he has a whole lot of inbuilt resilience or it's already been kind of drained out of him by everything else he's been battling his way through. So this challenge now arrives. For him, he must perform. His duty is to perform shows of resilience to lift up the generation ahead of him and the generation behind him because they all need him to step up and perform. And that's admirable of him. But we can see that it doesn't come naturally to him. And the question then, the dramatic question is, how long can he keep that performance going and what's going to trigger its unravelling? And then as it unravels, how is he going to try and try and pull it together again? Malcolm, does that resilience always lead to change in Gordon or in your main characters? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that when I talk about the, the deeper stuff I want to get to in a novel, that, that's, that's exactly where I hope to lead, which is change. And, and I think that in this novel, the, the changes that come about in these characters is it's profound in the end. It's also one of those books that in the timing of it, I, I really like the idea of a novel building up pressure and then then events change occurring almost of almost of their own volition but because they can't be resisted any longer and i think probably about two-thirds of this book is about the resistance the resistance to change and to go back to your question almost mistaking stubbornness a negative attribute for resilience and the show of resilience that Gordon is putting on is actually just stubbornness. It's when those two things become decoupled from each other in the the final third of the book that, you know, everything starts to change for him and the others around him. 
do you ever physicalize that change? Are they ever scarred more than emotionally when it comes to any of your main characters? It's a, a great question. It's it's hard to answer because I'm suddenly my, my head's getting overly packed with this. Is your sixth book? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and um, they're all rushing in to to um, demand their own <laughs> uh, their own response. You know, phys- physically, I guess Gordon, and and that's the character we've been talking about mostly. There are changes which I can't give away for spoiler reasons. Not not profound changes to him personally. He doesn't he doesn't get injured, and but other people do. It's more it's more an inner change. And and again, going back to that realism thing, I, I would hope that by the end of the book, a reader would feel that that Gordon has changed in the way that we change. We being the majority of us whose lives are largely without, fortunately, without significant physical events such as war or murder or, you know, damage of a, of a, um, an obvious kind. Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. What's your writing process, Malcolm? When I'm writing a novel, which which I'm not doing all the time, but but when I am doing that, it it becomes pretty all uh, devouring, and it's not something. Certainly in the in the drafting uh, stage, it's not something that I can reduce to a process or say, "Here's two hours of the day. I'll give this, and then I'll go on with other things." It becomes a monster that preoccupies me while waking and sleeping, and I really try to go with that and write. I end up writing quite quickly, particularly in the first draft, just to purge it from my system. So, in the first draft phase, it'll it'll be like that, and I'll fit in my other work and obligations around the around the edges of that. Then I'll take a break and then come back to it uh, when I feel you know part of me has forgotten it and I'll start it again. I'll go, you know, from beginning to end. And in this case, uh, I probably did that about four drafts before I felt I'd pretty much nailed it and, and showed it to the first reader outside myself. And this was the beginning of another 12 or 13 drafts after that um, and another year or more of work because very clearly I hadn't nailed it after after four drafts. The important part of the process then, I, I'm always one who believes that um, writing is rewriting and, and that's why I write really quickly in the first draft and don't fret too much over small things um, because I think all the work's going to be done in the successive drafts over the next couple of years. So don't get hung up on that first draft. And then the, the, the process as a daily thing becomes a bit of a recapitulation of that initial process. So for two or three weeks, when I'm doing one of those redraftings, it, it becomes all devouring again for two or three weeks, and then I'll put it aside <laughs> for two or three weeks. Yeah, so we go on and on until, until I can't take it anymore. <laughs> wow. Now, this is book number six. What's next? 
I don't know, um, writing-wise. Uh, I, I, I always have ideas for novels and, and some of them, it's a kind of a process of elimination where some of them get past the ideas phase to where I, I actually start composing uh, and start writing. But a lot of them, and this has always been the case for me, a lot of them have just died on the way through. I've written... 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 words and have just then lost lost the the enthusiasm and, and I tend not to go back to them. I have on occasion, but usually when they die, they die. So I subject them to quite a tough gestation where it's really got to, it's got to have the, the survival instinct to, to get through all of the things I've put in its way. Malcolm, we're glad Gordon's story didn't get killed off at 40,000 words. Uh, it's a great summer read. Thank you for chatting with us. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. 